Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin our look this morning in verse 36. And I wish to read this passage before we get into it. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 36, picking up from where we were last week. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be to you. They were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still not, did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of raw fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate it in their midst, in their presence. And then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. We have been following the sequence of appearances after the resurrection of Jesus. Last Sunday, as we were following it, we went by the listing that the Apostle Paul gives, that, that first he was seen by Cephas, and though it's not specifically given at the details of that, that uh, uh, the meeting that he had with, with Paul, with Peter, uh, we know that it was true and that it is mentioned here in Luke chapter 24 as well. And then it is said that he, he appeared to the twelve. And each appearance of, of Christ was different in type and in purpose. We saw how he dealt with the two on the road to Emmaus. And after Jesus left them, they came with haste to Jerusalem to let the eleven and those who were with them know what had happened. And as they came in, they were greeted with these great words, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, to Cephas, to Peter. Jesus had appeared to the two men in a way that they did not recognize him. They were kept from somehow recognizing who he was and and so he conversed with them as any stranger might. And then he rebuked them. He rebuked them for not believing all that the prophets had spoken. Now rebuking, rebuking them for not believing what the prophets had spoken means then that they knew what the prophets had spoken and had failed to make the proper application of what was being spoken. So it was 
given that they must be very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Because he didn't upbraid them for being ignorant. He didn't say, have you never read? But you have read, but you didn't make you didn't make the right application. You didn't believingly apply what they said. You were too busy looking for political things. You're too busy looking for other things instead of looking to see what truly was there. And if we don't see Jesus in our reading, we may not have seen the passage properly. So in verse 27 beginning with Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them all, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then as they were speaking about the incident, the, uh, what took place in verse 32, they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Jesus was corrective with them, but he was also at the same time kind. He was full of grace, and he would not allow these men to wallow in uncertainty and distress. And now as they were telling the others what had happened, we read, now as they said these things, verse 36, as Thus they spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them. And we see then what his first words were. It might make sense that he said, here I am, I've conquered death. But instead, he says to them, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Now we pause here and compare Jesus with uh, what he said with the two men in verses 25 and 26 when he said, oh, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In verse 17, we, understand, we see that they were walking along with their heads down. They were sad. So Jesus said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And yet, in verses 23 and 24, they were talking about the certain women of our company arrived. They saw the tomb was empty. And when they did not find his body, they came saying that, they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. They're sad. But they've just heard the words that the tomb is empty. It's been said that angels had appeared to the women to tell them that he's not there. So Jesus' response to them, as we've seen in verses 25 and 26, is, is both stern at the same time it is gentle. And now here among the gathering of the disciples, he's going to look step by step at what he does. First, he says those words, peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. 
Well, first, we can see that the meaning is this. Peace, because the future is secure. The future is secure. What do you mean by that? I mean this. That they were all sitting there wondering, what in the world are we going to do now? Is he really raised? What's the the future going to hold for us who followed him and believed him? He said, peace. You don't have to worry about the future. The future's settled. It always has been. But second, and I think even more important, in this greeting that he gives to him, where he says, peace be unto you, it is necessary that they hear those words. What were the disciples doing the last time they saw Jesus alive? They weren't standing there with, with the a whole army saying, no, you can't take him. They ran. We know that John and Peter did something a little bit different, but even though Peter didn't run, he didn't show himself to be all that strong either. So the last time Jesus sees his disciples, for the most part, is he sees them running away. Running when they had vowed that they would never do it. Even if we have to die with you, we won't. We won't leave. And yet, there was the prophecy and it was fulfilled. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But less than one week prior to this, Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And we look at that and we stop and we focus on Peter, but the rest of the verse tells us this. And so said all the disciples. We're good at making promises. There's a lot of them being made right now. I don't know about your mailbox, but there's a stack about this high that's come in for the last eight or nine weeks of those making promises. And I'm not sure how many of those will ever be kept. But we're, we're good at making promises and normally we're quite sincere about it. And I believe when they said that to Jesus that they were very sincere. But I can't help but think too, knowing that the Lord Jesus knew their hearts and knew everything that was going to happen The moment they were saying that, he was also seeing them running as they made those strong statements. Now here they are. They're in this room, and it's the first time they are back together with Jesus. Ever since the day they ran, this is the first time. Now they're back with him. He's with them. Oh, there's joy, and there's great fear. For the conqueror is now amongst the cowards. But not a word of rebuke comes from his lips. Not any sharp, angry words, because 
for most of us, we would be tempted to say, y'all remember what you did, don't you? But not Jesus. That's not what's called for at this moment. Instead, he calmly and quietly in their midst, right in the middle of them, he stands and says, peace be unto you. This is what Paul would would write as the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. You think of what they did and here's Jesus the first time back with him. He says, peace. I'm at peace with you. J.C. Ryle wrote, he is far more willing to forgive than men are to be forgiven. And far more ready to pardon than all are to be pardoned. What has Jesus done with our sins? He's cast them behind his back. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west. He's blotted them out in his own blood. He nailed them to the cross. But what does man do? Well, he keeps those things in his holster. He's ready to pull them out and pick them up again. You see how different the idea of a complete and full pardon and forgiveness is for man to fathom. I'm completely forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single sin I have committed, He's forgiven me for every single one. Oh, the evil one said, Well, yeah, what about that one you did over there? Forgive him. And then we have others who will remind us, even though Christ is forgiven, we have others that remind us, Well, you remember what you did. Thank God, though, when I stand before Him in judgment, that won't come up. Because Christ has blotted it out. The idea of a complete and full pardon and forgiveness. It's so hard for us to fathom because we don't see it exhibited. Especially when it comes to unearned forgiveness. Forgiveness that we didn't earn. You see, the priests trade on this. That you can't accept the idea that you're forgiven for your sins. So there's a whole system in Roman Catholicism that deals with what you need to do according to certain sins. It's a whole system of penance. Now, okay, Father, I did this, this, that, and the other thing. Well, here's what you do. Three Our Fathers, four Hail Marys, do the rosary, Various other things. And it's all the idea that you can't accept the fact that in Christ you're forgiven. So therefore, you have to do something. And priestcraft comes along and says, well, here's the things that you need to do. But you've got to see the priest in order to get that what you need to do to be forgiven. And what does Scripture tell us? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll be forgiven. Believe on Christ. 
If you have a certain sin that you're dealing with and it's very difficult to, to get by and you want to come and seek counsel about it, that's one thing, but you're not going to come to me and say, this is what I need to do so I can say to you, well then now that you need to run around the building four times. <laughs> and by all means, you need to double your offering. And while you're at it, buy four or five candles. We don't do that. Why? Because Christ, Christ has purchased our pardon. What burden does Jesus bring to these people for their action? You deserted me, thou, this is what you need to do. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, peace, peace be unto you. And we read in verse 37 that even with that greeting, they were terrified and they were frightened. Now, you might say, well, isn't that kind of a parallel thing? No, there's two different kinds of emotions that were taking place here. Why were they this way? Well, first, because of guilt, obviously. What is he? If Jesus came today and he stood right here in our midst, would we all just run right up to him and say, man, it is so great to see you. I've been waiting for you. I've been looking for you. I've been yearning for you. Or would we slowly, and maybe even sheepishly, make our way toward him? You see, the only thing that would scare us about Jesus' return is our own guilt. But that shouldn't be there. Because he's not going to stand there and say, uh, well, let's see, you've been around and in 1970, you did this, 1980, you did that, 1990, and go through the whole list. Because it's gone. It's gone. When something is removed as far as the east is from the west, as we've gone over any number of times, there's not an east pole and a west pole. There's no way of, of bringing it back. It's blotted out. You can't read it even anymore. So the, there's that deal with the guilt. But secondly, and there's that deal with superstition. I'm amazed on, on uh, the satellite and cable networks that the Travel Channel spends half of its shows talking about things that are haunted. It's supposed to be a travel channel. <laughs> Why would you want to go to these places where things are being thrown at you? And where you can't get a good night's sleep because there's something in the other room banging against metal bars or whatever. But old superstitions had taken hold. You see, we never really get rid of the old man, the old nature. And they supposed that they had seen a spirit. Now, what's the only reason in their minds that they would see a ghost? And that is that that ghost would come back to haunt them. 
But knowing their thoughts and how that they had perceived him to be a spirit, in verse 38, he says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? Rather than upbraid them for their reaction, what does Jesus do? And to upbraid means to kind of like to yell at them angrily for being silly. Rather than upbraid them, what does he do? He accommodates them. He goes down to their level to bring them up. And in verse 39, he says to them, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. He says, see, it's a real body in front of you. Flesh and bones. Some have said, it's noteworthy that he doesn't say it's flesh and blood. And it, means, it must mean that his resurrection body had no blood in it. I, I, the people get into so many silly things because they can't read scripture. What were they nervous about? They thought they saw a ghost, a spirit, an apparition. A formless kind of thing. So what does he say? Look! There's skin, and under the skin, there's a skeleton. There's a form. Open your eyes and see these things. It says, normally we say flesh and blood. Well, yeah, flesh and blood's a different thing. And in a different context. But here he's saying, there is form. An apparition. <laughs> okay, let's be silly. When was the last time Casper the Friendly Ghost broke a leg? He can't because he's a ghost. He's a friendly ghost, but he's still, he's still a ghost. The context is he's proving the fact that he has a real body. It's not a spirit. It's not a phantom. It's not a disembodied soul. But he has a real body with real flesh and a real form due to a real skeleton. He wasn't a, a formless apparition. And then he shows his hands and his feet, the wounds and the scars. And this is interesting. When we look at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, John says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. There's that reference to that. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, the same thing comes up. And their response is not really easy to understand at first when we look at it. 
In verse 40, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In verse 41, their reaction leaves us scratching our heads for a little bit, for a moment. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, they still did not believe for joy. And they marveled. We have to think on this for a moment. They'd already been given three reports of the resurrection. The women have told them, Peter has told them, Cleopas and his friend have now told them. And now he appears before him, them. And in seeing him, hearing him, touching him, and in his forgiving and accommodating manner, their, their joy was so great that they found it hard to believe that this was truly a reality. That they were almost distrusting their own senses and feelings is what it came down to. So it seemed too good to believe. Too good to be real. We're seeing it, but we're having trouble making sure that our eyes are really seeing what we're seeing. We're hearing, but we're having trouble. We're glad to hear what we're hearing, but is our mind fooling us? So it wasn't that they were filled with disbelief. They were, at this point, not trusting themselves. Because this all seemed way too good to be true. Now time is is running quickly here, so I want to finish just by reading the rest of it. So verse 42, well, verse 41, he he asked, he says, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. Not the cereal. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, Thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ, and he calls himself the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. So in the final moments, let us see where this is taking us. Last week, we saw that Jesus used the word, he used witnesses, and he used the sacrament to reveal himself and revealed himself in the breaking of bread. This week, we see that he adds to this his wounds. Behold, my hands and my feet. And then, once again, he would eat. And eating would be a show of reality again of his human body. 
Now, four things very quickly as we come to the end of this. First, I would make us note that the manner of which he spoke. To those who were weak, he met them where they were. A smoking flax he will not extinguish. He met them at their point of weakness to bring them up to strength. It's our own fault then if we do not come to Christ. For he doesn't stand there with a whip waiting to beat us. But he says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Second, the wounds that he has in his body. These wounds are important because they show what he went through for sure. But let us understand that even in his glorified body in heaven, those wounds are still visible. As John would see as he looked up there, so a lamb has slain. The marks of what he did on the cross are eternal marks because what he accomplished is eternal in nature. Third, his presence. We won't see that physically. We can stand here and say all we want to. Well, I believe Jesus when he appears to me. It's not going to happen. And we really don't want Jesus to be here physically. And why is that? Because Jesus has done better. Remember that song by Bread that was out years ago? The song, If. If a man could be two places at one time, but he can't. So Christ was here bodily. He couldn't be anywhere else. By his spirit, he is able to be with each and every one of us. Not only outside us, but in us. And the Holy Spirit will dwell in us forever. And then very quickly as we end, verses 44 through 46, the greatest proof of all is the Word. And that is who He is. That's the name given to Him in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The beginning of Hebrews. In chapter 1, right at the beginning, God who spoke in sundry various ways through the prophets has now in these last days spoken through his Son, through whom he made all things. Jesus is the last word from God. And that's who he is. He's the everlasting, unchanging truth. And from Genesis 3, verse 15, to Revelation 22, 20, Jesus' footprints are on every single chapter of the Bible. Again, it's necessary, though, that he must open 
our understanding. I, I, I laugh sometimes because somebody says, well, you know, a casual reading of the Bible would lead one to do this. <laughs> a casual reading of the Bible. I know sometimes that we, when we read Scripture, we don't fully bring ourselves into it. It's, it's really impossible to, to really just sit down sometimes and just, I'm fully immersed in this. At the same time, though, we don't pick it up and say, well, you know, I'll just read a couple of words here and then that'll be good for the day. You know, I don't understand the full concept of a casual reading. What, what are you preparing for Jeopardy? And if Christ is opening our understanding, then it's not casual at all. It's a matter of life. Life coming to us through the word. So I would say look no further for proof, but turn to what he pointed to as the last and the most highest and greatest unchanging and eternal proof of who he was. The word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abideth forever. Let's stand together for prayer.